Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we start by talking to Aaron Rock Singer about his new book, In the Shade of the Sunnah, Salafi Piety in the 20th Century Middle East. Then we talk to some of the authors of another chapter in the political science of the Middle East, this time chapter 10, Migration, with Rana Khori, Lama Murad, and Rowan Arar. And then finally, we talk to Lindsay Benstead and Kristen Cow about their recent article in Comparative Politics entitled Female Electability in the Arab World, the Advantages of Intersectionality. Uh, thanks for listening to our program. I'm Mark Lynch. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Aaron Rock Singer, Univers University of Wisconsin at Madison, and author of the new book, In the Shade of the Sunnah, Salafi Piety in the 20th Century Middle East, just published by the University of California Press. Uh, Aaron, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. So this is a really interesting book, a bit of a departure from, uh, from the last one. Um, tell us a little bit about it and um, what you're trying to do with this book. Well, so this book really began because I didn't understand something. Namely, I didn't understand where the idea of the danger of gender mixing and the necessity of gender segregation had come from in 1970s Egypt. My first book was focused on the rise of the Islamic revival in 1970s Egypt. So it began as essentially going down a hole to try to figure out where this concept came from and how it came about. And it then morphed into a broader project on Salafi piety and specifically on the ways in which Salafis have used pious practice in the 20th century to shape the societies around them as well as their very specific communities. And what I discovered was that really in contrast to the scholarship on Salafism that I had read, which suggested that Salafi positions proceed fairly directly from proof texts in the Quran and the authoritative account of the Prophet Muhammad's life, the Sunnah, that these practices emerged gradually over the course of the 20th century in a way that really challenged one to think of them as the result of a particular interpretive approach. And that really the much more plausible explanation for why they emerged as they did and why, why certain practices emerged was that this was about com competition with other social movements, whether Islamic movements, uh, such as the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Egypt's leading Islamist organization, or secular nationalist movements. And so the, the gender part of it then goes into a much bigger set of questions about uh, kind of Salafi practice and which issues they've tended to focus upon as they sought to, you know, demonstrate this kind of model of piety. So Salafism is a highly patriarchal social movement that is intimately concerned with questions of gender. And the most obvious way in which it's concerned with questions of gender relates to regulating women's bodies. Uh, and this is why I wrote the chapter on gender segregation, because it was such a clear example of this and such an important pivot point of the Salafi social project. What I didn't necessarily expect to find, but found nonetheless, is that Salafism as a, as a project is also deeply concerned with regulating masculinity. Now, one might think, oh, well, it's a patriarchal project. Is it really about also regulating masculinity? And the answer is yes. It can, we can have both of those statements be true. Um, and here we see really a power differential between Salafi elites and rank and file who don't necessarily have any more access to the levers of interpretive power or institutional 
constitutional power um, than their female counterparts. And in some respects, the Selfie project of regulating male piety, uh, regulating male bodies is even more expansive or at the very least more detailed and more highly variegated than that of their female counterparts precisely because these men are being asked to perform this piety publicly. And indeed, one of the arguments I make in the book is that being visibly selfy in public is a really central plank of what they're doing. That it's not enough to simply hold these principles in one's heart. It's not enough to perform them in the home, that they need to be out in public in an identifiably Salafi manner. Uh, and the question then was, where does that concept come from? Is that something that we can find in the pre-modern period? Is it a modern development? And if it's a modern development, well, where does it come from? And my argument is that this idea of a linkage between ethics and visible behavior is something that Salafi move, the Salafi movement and non-Salafis, whether Islamists or non-Islamic movements full stop, have really imbibed from the projects of subject formation and individual regulation promoted by the Egyptian state in the 19th and 20th centuries. It's quite interesting that you place this within the context of British colonialism and Tim Mitchell's work on the regulation of public space. Yeah, I, so this is where Mitchell's work is, has been absolutely um, crucial because I was trying to, to figure out where these concepts came from. And for the typical um, person studying Salafism, and you know, this is a field that is really dominated by folks who focus on theology and law. And you know, rightly so, because theolo both theology and law are central to the study of Salafism. Um, but that doesn't necessarily get us as far if we're trying to understand Salafi social practice. Uh, because social practice is at once a manifestation of particular theological and legal positions, but that's the beginning point rather than the end point of understanding its formation and then propagation. Um, and so when I was going back and reading Mitchell's work, and I said to myself, wait a sec, this is exactly what's going on here. I was trying to understand why are Celebes so concerned with how they look, and I first thought it myself, well, this is really a reflection of the fact that they need to be able to recognize each other in public space, that this is a classic maneuver by a social movement that doesn't have access to the levers of power. Now, that's partially true, but what I realized was that wasn't the whole story, that the whole story was really that they were deeply committed to this linkage between ethics and visibility, and that they had been competing over this question for quite a long time with their ideological competitors. Um, and here, part of my goal is really for us to look at Salafism as a social movement that both in its internal logic and in the environmental conditions that it has faced, that, in, that it's been shaped by, is broadly similar to other social movements. Um, and that there's nothing particularly exceptional about that aspect of Salafism. If there's anything exceptional, and you just hinted at this a little bit, is that, as you said, there's been so much emphasis on theology and uh, and kind of the religious argumentation about these issues. Um, and so the contrast between your focus on social practice and individual demonstrations of piety combined with these really, really intricate uh, high-level theological debates is quite striking. Um, this the degree, the superstructure of the theological argumentation which boils down to regulating whether or not you wear shoes in a mosque. 
Yeah, so this is this is where we have this bridge between theology and law, which are the ways that Salafism as a project is normally defined, namely a neo-Hanbali approach to theology with which that Salafi scholars share with their Wahhabi Hanbali counterparts in Saudi Arabia, a commitment to deriving all law from the Quran and Sunnah, which as a normative commitment, I think we should take very seriously um, because it very much contrasts itself with the madhab system where one has a variety of other legal mechanisms for justifying positions that don't have explicit textual basis. But my argument is that that definition of Salafism, which has been really solidified in the field most recently by Henri Lozier's absolutely fantastic 2016 book, mm -hmm. um, is in some sense incomplete because Salafis are defined by theology and law but they are also defined by social practice. That what it means to be a Salafi as a concept is not limited to the intellectual, but is intimately related to the social. And that's really interesting when you see them trying to differentiate themselves from, you know, Nasser's modernized men or from the Muslim Brotherhood's, you know, kind of, you know, proselytizing middle class. And yes, I, I think these contrasts bring out two very important points. One is that there's a reason everyone's focused on facial hair, for example. Um, that the fact that Abdel Nasser's secular nationalist vision of the Effendiya has a particular understanding of social hair, um, and before him, obviously, the Effendiya project is more broadly, that the Brotherhood has a particular modern, um, has a particular model of facial hair that's really reflected in Hassan Albana's grooming, and that then the Salafis do too. Now, what's most interesting, actually, is that one when one drills down into the respective textual justifications of the Brotherhood and the Salafis for their kind of contrasting positions on facial hair, and the Brotherhood's position is reflected most prominently uh, in a, a book in a legal compendium that's very popular in the organization by a member of the group by the name of Asayid Sadiq, is that they actually both rely primarily on the same hadith report. That it is a hadith report about Ibn Omar going, on, going out for Hajj and trimming his beard, um, and trimming it specifically to a minimum of a fist, the kabda. Now for Salafis, that is the basis on which the fist is the measurement of reference for the beard as a minimum. But for the Brotherhood, Asay Sebek actually uses this exact same hadith to argue that this is why you can trim your beard more generally. He totally disregards the measurement of the fist, but you know, gives the citation but says, no, this is simply the evidence that you're allowed to trim the beard. Um, now, one might note in both positions that this is also a very specific hadith report. This is about mm -hmm. engaging in a particular ritual act and how one trims one's facial hair in that context. So this is, again, a reminder here that these citations are neither univocal nor leading to a particular end, that they're really being utilized as part of projects of competing models of piety and identity. Now, one of the really striking things about the book, and it comes through in chapter after chapter, is this idea that, you know, many people understand the Salafis, and they certainly want to project this image themselves, that they are simply modeling themselves on the behavior of the Prophet and his com companions. But mm -hmm. what you show is that they change their positions in remarkably rapid time from wanting to wear shoes in the mosque to not wanting to wear shoes in the mosque. And just that the changeable nature of what is projected as the timeless is just fascinating. So I think this is one of 
I agree with you. This is the most fascinating thing to me about solipsism, this gap or this uh, bridge between what is claimed normatively and, and in terms of a very clear white and black binary and the messiness of social life and textual interpretation as it pertains to social life. And in part, it's because Salafis are really basing their claim to authenticity on continuity with the early Muslim community of the seventh century. And as a result, they, they don't have much wiggle room. Um, that's in some sense the double-edged sword of the claim to replicate the prophetic model. That on the one hand, you have a really concrete claim to authenticity, but on the other hand, once you make that claim and make the claim in really strong terms that this is what Muhammad did and therefore we must do it, then you open yourself up to um, being perceived as really not just being unprincipled, but actually defying God's will and defying the prophetic model if you don't engage in a given practice. Um, and so this is, in some sense, what's, what's interesting to me about this is not the contradiction, because we find contradictions in, every, in any purist movement, religious or non-religious. What's interesting is what these contradictions can teach us about how Salafism works as a project. Now, for example, in the story of gender segregation and Salafism, perhaps the most famous position that was taken and then had to be, in some sense, abandoned was that Abdelaziz bin Baz, a leading Saudi scholar um, and Salafi, took the position that the Quranic prohibition against women flaunting themselves, known as tabaruj, uh, refers not to individual female conduct, which is basically how it had been interpreted for hundreds and hundreds of years, including by Salafi scholars just a few years before, but rather it refers to a prohibition against mixing. I remember reading, I remember reading, and thinking to myself, this is a fascinating claim because it's textually just totally coming out of nowhere. But if I'm thinking of this in some sense, more humanistically, more sympathetically, I say, okay, I'm putting myself in Ibn Bez's shoes. He has a problem. He doesn't have a proof text. He needs a proof text from the Quran and Sunnah based on normative expectations of Salafi authenticity that forbids gender mixing explicitly. But gender mixing as a concept really doesn't exist in the seventh century. That if we're, it's not that there isn't concern about male-female relations, but that concern is based on the threat of male-female interaction leading to premarital sex, um, to sex outside of marriage. Um, and that isn't a concern with men and women circulating more broadly in any um, expansive sense. And so he has to come up with an argument. And this is the argument he chooses. Um, now, what's interesting is that he does this in the mid-70s, but by the early 80s, he's essentially backtracking on this. And you see this among Salafi scholars more broadly, that no one goes back to Ibn Baz's original claim, which to be clear, he spread in not just Egypt, but also in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. um, and instead, they end up arguing that this is a case of damning the pretext of sin, that for, forbidding mixing, not because mixing is forbidden explicitly, but because it leads to forbidden actions, or arguing that it serves the common good of Muslims um, to ban mixing and therefore it should be done. Now, what, what's interesting about these justifications? They're not Salafi justifications. They're actually Islamic modernist 
or madhab justifications. Because the Salafi distinctiveness in terms of legal reasoning is that everything has to come back to the Quran and Sunnah. But making that argument about gender segregation as necessary simply on a textual level was a very, very heavy lift. And so they had to find ways around it. And it also came crashing into the social realities of an Egypt where a lot of most women are leaving the home to work or they're going to university or especially for the poorer uh, classes, they have no option to avoid crowded public transportation. Yeah, and I think this is a, this is a really important point and a point where the contrast between Ibn Baz's environmental conditions in Saudi Arabia and his Salafi counterparts in Egypt really were quite different because for gender segregation in Saudi Arabia, it wasn't simply petrodollars. It was also the fact that for over two decades, the Wahhabi Hanbali elite had very much been in support of a project of gender segregation. So to be clear, and this is what's most interesting at looking at Ibn Baz in comparison, the doyen of the Wahhabi Hanbali establishment, Muhammad bin Ibrahim, who dies in the late 60s, he made the argument against gender mixing along perfect madhab lines. I mean, he, he described it as an issue of damning the pretext of sin. He didn't feel a need to have a proof text. Um, but Ibn Baz had this set up in Saudi Arabia. But yeah, as you know, this really didn't fit the social reality of Egypt. It was also the case that Salafis didn't have access to levers of power in Egypt in any way similar to that which they had in Saudi Arabia. Even though they were a minority within a broader Wahhabi Hanbali majority in Saudi Arabia, there were some very prominent Salafis to the point where um, someone such as a leading member of Ansar Sunnah and Muhammadiyah, Egypt's leading Salafi organization, Abdel um, Razak al Afifi, um, he actually became more prominent in Saudi Arabia in terms of his access to power than he ever had in Egypt. He was number two in the hierarchy of Egypt's leading Salafi group, but he had more access to power at the point that he migrated in the mid 20th century to Saudi Arabia. And just to follow up on that a little bit, that's one of the things which, again, from from my perspective and things I'm interested in, uh, what really jumps out in the book is the transnational nature of a lot of these debates where you see, you know, kind of religious argumentation bouncing around from Saudi Arabia to Egypt, Kuwait, um, you know, kind of taking place in this genuinely kind of transnational Islamist public sphere. Um, and I like the way you're constantly, frequently throughout the book, you refer to both sides of the Red Sea, which is just not the way we often think about these typically nationalist historiographies. So this was, the, I, I started, you know, I started my career as someone who studied Egypt. Um, and this is still a book in many ways that is about Egypt. But I realized that if I wanted to tell the story of Salafism, it just didn't make that much sense if it were limited to Egypt that I wouldn't see the way in which debates not just crossed the Red Sea, but then crossed back. Um, and I wouldn't see the diffusion of them to Syria or to Yemen or to Kuwait. Um, I wouldn't be able to catch the points where the same scholars were writing in different periodicals in different countries and shaping their positions in very nuanced ways for the realities of those countries. Um, and so that's part of what was so fun about taking a transnational perspective to Salafism, that I could have told the story of the emergence of Salafism as a movement in Egypt, and that, would, that is a valuable story, but it's also, without the transnational element, one is missing 
not just a crucial element of intellectual history or political history, but also a crucial element of social history. Because we only get a sense of how disruptive some of these practices are with reference to other places. So, now, for example, we have hints of the disruptiveness of praying in shoes in Egypt. But in some sense, the social stakes of that project are short-circuited short because Abdel Nasser comes to power in Salafi's retreat. Um, there's real cost to being visibly pious um, in, that, in that context, in part because one might be associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, whereas we have these fantastic stories of what it looks like praying in shoes in the Arabian Peninsula. And so two stories that come to mind is one, a story that's recounted in one of these pamphlets on praying with shoes, where there's this discussion of basically a physical fight that breaks out um, at a mosque in Yemen, at a Salafi mosque where these men are praying in shoes and another person comes up to them and starts to kind of try to beat the crap out of them. Um, and there's also a really wonderful story of um, the former uh, Egyptian minister of endowments, Sheikh Nimr, who goes to Saudi Arabia, and this is back in the 50s, I believe, um, when Mohammed bin Ibrahim is still in power and alive as sort of the leading member of the Wahhabi Hanbali elite. And Nimr is just shocked by how dirty Saudi mosques are <laughs> because people are praying in shoes. And he, he recounts this in his memoir, how surprised he was by this. Um, and so I get to tell these really nuanced and juicy stories of the intersection between theological and legal positions with social life that I, I wouldn't have been able to tell to the same degree if this project had been solely focused on Egypt. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. Now, one of the social contexts where a lot of this plays out, and it's really quite remarkable how much of the uh, kind of both national and transnational Islamist scene plays out here is in the universities in the early 1970s in Egypt with the Jamaat Islamiya, uh, which is bringing together the, you know, these proto Muslim brothers and proto-Salafis and this ferment on, on the campuses. Yeah, and the, the Islamic student movement, the Jamaat Islamiya is fascinating to me because it's essentially this very ideologically fluid space or ideologically fluid organization where some of the members of this group end up joining Ansar Sunnah, the leading Salafi organization in Egypt. Others join the Brotherhood once they leave university, but they haven't quite figured out who they're part of at this, for the most part at this point. And as a result, they're not just an ideologically interesting environment, but they also are very open about how diverse the ideological influences are, that they're talking about getting books from Saudi Arabia, of reading Ansar Sunnah authors, of reading Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, of reading the leading Salafi scholar, Muhammad Nasr al-Din al-Dani, mm -hmm. and making very clear that no one has much money here. And so that a big, a big influence on what they read is what's available for free. Um, and you know, in some sense, this was the first opportunity for Salafis and non-Salafis in Egypt to really explore, to experiment with what a project of social regulation and you know, public piety and um, you know, in some respects, social disruption would look like um, in the post-Nasser period. Um, and in some respects, what they were experimenting with then, it, 
is in some sense very similar to the environmental conditions that we continue to have today in the context of the Islamic revival, that seizing on social space as the space that's really hard for the regime to regulate and really fruitful in terms of diffuse political protest simply by seeking to change society from bottom up, it has become a strategy that various Islamic movements use and in doing so, they don't limit themselves to a single space. Um, and I think this is a really important misconception about Islamic movements that they exist in a particular space. They do exist in those spaces, but they also go about their lives. They go through society, they inhabit spaces that they don't regulate. And the best way to shape society, to shape spaces that you don't regulate is through what you do with your body. And that's why these bodily practices are so incredibly potent. And you show that, you know, at, at another level, you know, they're in a sense, uh, they're checkmated a little bit by what the Muslim Brotherhood aligned uh, student groups are doing, you know, so if, the, if those student groups are already pushing for gender segregation through veiling, um, or if they're already doing some things which might seem to be what a, you know, a Salafi movement would be doing, in a sense that short circuits that as a way of differentiating themselves. Yes, and I think this is where gender segregation and it's a non-negotiable principle for Salafis in Egypt really comes from. Because in the early 70s, they have a ba- the, the folks in Ansar Sana have a basic problem, that their position on female modesty doesn't distinguish themselves from the brotherhood. That there are Salafis at this time, most prominently and for some infamously, Muhammad Nasruddin al-Zani, who argue that it's not just that gender segregation isn't required, the niqab isn't even required. Um, and Al-Abeni does this based on his understanding of the proof texts that are being used to justify the Um And the Brotherhood, too, take, you know, there, there's a minority within the Brotherhood at this point that would argue for the Niqab, but for the most part, they don't. And so their position right. on piety and that of the Salafis just isn't that different. Um, to make matters even more difficult, the Brotherhood has been talking about the dangers of gender mixing for half a century. They've been talking about it since the 30s or the late 20s even. Um, And so the challenge then for the Salafis is, this is language that the Brotherhood has totally taken control of. Well, what do we do with it? They have identified the threat, but the Brotherhood isn't going to the point of saying, gender mixing is a problem, therefore gender segregation is necessary. And that's the leap that the Salafis make. And the reason they make that leap is not just to distinguish themselves from the Brotherhood, but also, as you notice, it's kind of a checkmate to the Sadat regime. Because if the regime is saying we uphold Islamic law, the Salafis are saying, okay, we'll uphold this. How can you not do this if you say you uphold Islamic law? Um, But what's most striking, and I think this is true of both those activists that go on to join the Brotherhood and those activists in the Islamic student movement go on to join Ansar Sunnah or other Salafi groups, uh, such as the Dawa Salafi or the Salafi on Alexandria, is that these changes happen on the ground. That for the most part, when we have institutional change, it is produced by working locally with with administrators in particular institutions. It's not national policy. Um, It's basically about how do you mobilize on a grassroots level to not just mobilize people to your cause, but to find the ear of sympathetic administrators. And it's this reminder, um, you know, I, you know, I work in one of these 
large bureaucratic universities, that, bureaucrat that bureaucrats sort of lower down on the totem pole often have a great deal of influence about how things work. Uh, and there's more or less correspondence between top-down principles and actual implementation on the ground. Well, it's really interesting. There's so much more we could talk about, but um, people are just going to have to go and uh, read the book. Um, uh, Aaron Rocksinger, new book, In the Shade of the Sunna. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Each week, we've been talking with some of the authors of chapters in the book that Polmeps produced, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings. On this week's episode, we're joined by some of the authors of Chapter 10, Migration and Displacement, uh, which is authored by Rowan Arar, Lari Brand, Rana Khoury, Nora Lori, Lama Murad, and Wendy Perlman. Uh, we're joined today by Rowan, uh, Rana, and Lama. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, could one of you just start us off by telling us a little bit about the origins of the chapter and uh, and where this fits into our you know rethinking of research that we that's been done since 2011? Lama. Yeah, well, maybe I can get us started. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, thank you for uh, you know having us on the podcast and for for sort of initiating this wonderful project. Uh, so. In terms of the way that, that I think this chapter uh, fits into the study of, of sort of post-Arab uprisings study in the Middle East is that while migration did become really central to the study of MENA politics post-uprisings, I think, you know, because the region became the largest uh, migrants, er, forced migrant sending and receiving region in the world, uh, it's really important uh, and, and we do so in this chapter, that to understand that the region has historically been really um, uh, affected by and uh, has governed migration in really important ways. So we see both forced migration being a really important um, uh, transformational process in the region historically, but we also see labor migration uh, from the region to other regions in the world as being really uh, impactful on sort of economies within the region and, and vice versa. So it's really important that even though migration, uh, the study of migration in the region post-2011 has become so important that we not forget that this has sort of a deeper history in the region. Now, Rowan, this is part, as you, as uh, Lama was just saying, this is part of a, of a global set of connections. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you see the Middle East fitting in with that. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having us. And, and thanks, Lama, for getting us started. Um, one of the things that the chapter does is really focus on the global connections. So putting different countries in conversation with one another in MENA, but also putting MENA in conversation with the rest of the world. I think this is very clear when we think about the ways in which forced displacement have been framed. It has been framed in so much of the, um, let's say, reports or humanitarian produced texts that we read. Um, but moving and, and taking a scholarly approach to this, I think that we can push against the um, ways, maybe maybe the, the more limited ways in which Mina is, is tied to um, other, let's say, receiving states in the world. So here I'm thinking about resettlement in the case of forced migration, but also um, thinking about how um, what's happening in MENA also affects other countries. <laughs> um, 
uh, around the world and and throughout the region. And it, it and it's interesting, right? Because it's not just refugees; it's uh, it's also labor migration, and we're looking at the World yes. Cup right now. Exactly. So it's not just refugees, it's also labor migration. And beyond that, we also think about the relationship between the two. So pushing against this artificial divide that's really informed by, um, let's say, uh, legal definitions of, of who meets a, a, the definition of a refugee, um, but really looking at how there are these mixed flows and people are motivated to flee or move for, for these reasons. And I think um, taking a historical approach also brings that into question as well. So again, giving scholars an opportunity to push against um, the ways in which migration in MENA is usually talked about um, outside of the, the academic context. And, you know, so one of the things which is really clear from reviewing the, the literature is that there's been an explosion of research on refugee communities and uh, for, I think, fairly clear reasons. Uh, but Rana, you've written quite a lot in, in, in the chapter that we engage or the chapter engages quite directly with the ethics of doing this kind of research. Tell us a little bit about how the community has evolved in terms of its thinking about this kind of research. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for having us um, be part of this. So while to echo Lema and Rowan's points about how you know, migration and displacement are part of you know, the historical formation of the region and have affected all of these historical processes, we also acknowledge that you know, political scientists often study things happening closer to the present um, and are often undertaking field work. So the three of us have thought a lot about the ethics of field work and how we can approach these you know, challenging issues uh, that come up in research, especially on refugees. And so it was productive to think this through with, with Lemon Nirwan, who have also written on this topic. Um, and we see, you know, three main issues, I think, come up in the question of ethics and fieldwork. One is how we have seen uh, refugees uh, used as proxies for understanding processes that are happening within the conflict state. And so being able to think about what kind of conclusions are we drawing from people who are removed from the state, um, and not to say that we shouldn't do that, but to sort of be very thoughtful and deliberate when we do. Um, the second, which is related, is thinking about refugees as Yes, a vulnerable population, but not necessarily a hard to reach population. Um, refugees can often actually be quite easy to reach. And so thinking about what those uh, questions of easy access mean for potentially over-researching, re-traumatizing refugees and the like. And the third um, issue, in which is quite particular to refugee studies as well writ large is the question of how are we informing policy? This is one of those subject areas where often policy conclusions are um, sought after. And so to you know, be very aware and mindful of how what we say can affect policy. Well, that's great. And, and, you know, this cuts across all the chapters, these the, the ethical concerns, but I think it really did come out uh, perhaps most clearly in this chapter. And that was a great contribution. Why don't we talk a little bit about some of the um, the, the concrete um, uh, issues which came up as you were surveying the literature and thinking through what we've learned about migration, displacement, um, refugees since 2011. Alama, what jumped out at you as you were um, working on this chapter? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the main um, 
points that that we make in this chapter and that really came out very strongly in the literature as we you know reviewed it was that you know despite uh, the importance and you know we don't deny the importance of, of sort of transnational dynamics and global governance issues and uh, you know the uh, actual just effect of, of people moving across borders uh, and often the, the the sort of false depiction of many states in the region as weak or fragmented or um, you know fractured or unable to govern what we see in the study of, of migration in the MENA states are still very important actors uh, in both governing, you know, the arrival of migrants uh, onto their territory, you know, uh, and, and the development of multiple forms of legal status and temporary statuses, for example, but also in engaging with and, and sort of governing immigrant populations as well. Uh, so I think this has been one thing that really comes out really strongly in, in the chapter. And I think we continue to see today is that despite sort of uh, many, many claims of, of state weakness in the region, the state is still a very important actor. No, it's a really important point. Uh, Rowan, what about you? What, what jumped out at you? Uh, well, if, if I wanted to expand on the point of the state, which is something that is followed as a thread throughout the chapter, um, I think w one important point in terms of operationalizing that approach is thinking about how when we ignore the state, we actually end up homogenizing the response to, let's say, displacement or migration. Um, and again, I think that this is something that scholars have an opportunity to bring to, um, especially the study of, of forced migration. So just to be very concrete about this, there are many ways in which we see that um, the study of displacement in Lebanon is then copy pasted to the study of displacement in Jordan, which then copy pasted to Turkey, right? But actually, when we central put the put the state in a centralized position to understand um, people's lived experiences, we begin to see not only how things vary um, from one place to another, but also the ways in which the the state operates to shape people's lives. Um, and uh, one thing that, that came up in a conversation we were having earlier, Lemma was actually making the point too about the Syrian state itself. So thinking about how um, now that, that Lebanon has been pushing for returns, um, Syria has actually played a role in keeping people out. So again, just reinforcing this, this point that um, even when states are characterized as um, not powerful, they are strong when it comes to controlling borders and movement. And so if we're interested in studying um, the, the strength of states, migration, whether it's related to forced migration or labor migration, we can see how powerful the state is as an actor. And just to kind of emphasize a, a really important point here is, you know, there is a turn to take the, the global south more seriously in larger understandings of um, global movement. And one way to do that is to actually recognize that states are different from one to another and think about how they um, respond to both migrants and, and refugees within this context. And so in that way, we're not necessarily homogenizing the whole global South by taking the state seriously. We recognize that there is difference across the global South. That's really important. Uh, Rana, I guess the same question to you then. 
Sure. Uh, so in thinking about you know, what migration and displacement um, can tell us about the state or what maybe it should be telling us, uh, you know, thinking again historically about the state formation in the Middle East being a process that was very closely connected um, to migration and population movements in the wake of um, the world wars and post-colonial struggles. Um, and then thinking, you know, thinking today about um, what has changed about conflict in the state in the region and how you know the increased prevalence of uh, internal state conflicts civil wars as opposed to inter interstate conflicts you know and thinking about how refugees were previously sort of thought of as these security th threats um, or potential warriors against their state from neighboring states and that phenomenon potentially um, giving way to other forms of refugees engaged that are not violent and not sort of causing the spread of civil war um, that we previously had associated with refugees in the Middle East. That's interesting. So why don't we like go back uh, to Lama? And uh, I guess I'm going to ask the same question to each of you now, which is, you know, what do you what was the one thing about the process of writing the chapter or the or what you found as you wrote the chapter that uh, you thought was the most kind of the most interesting, uh, either a contribution to the field or uh, about the nature of the process? Uh, yeah, thank you, Mark. Um, so there, I think, you know, in terms of process and writing this, uh, I think, uh, and, and in contributions to the field, I think one of the really amazing things about this chapter is that contrary to the broader publication patterns in the field. This is an all woman scholar team. And uh, it was a really wonderful, honestly, incredible <laughs> uh, collaboration. And so uh, from a process standpoint, I think I can, I can say that. Uh, from a, you know, one of the things I think that the chapter offers, and I think it's true of some of the other chapters in the volume as well, is that because uh, the study of migration just more broadly in political science wasn't something that was really um, focused on until really sort of the post-Cold War era. Um, although in, in the MENA actually, we do have some work before this, uh, which sort of buck that trend a little bit. Uh, what we see in the chapter is a, a actually quite great deal of interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity. So we draw on the work of, of historians, of anthropologists, of sociologists, you know, like Prawan, uh, so who's with us today. But so it's really a chapter that goes beyond uh, political science, though really tries to emphasize, you know, what political science scholarship has brought forward as well. Uh, Rowan. Well, I have to agree with Lemma that writing this chapter as, as a team has just been such a, a joy and a really great way to um, think out loud together. So that was, that was just a lot of fun and very fulfilling. Uh, I think, you know, this is a chapter that I wish I had <laughs> when I was starting my field work. It's a survey um, that not only describes the state of the field, but also suggests paths moving forward. Uh, I think it would be great for somebody who is not only turning to the topic of study, studying migration and displacement in MENA, but let's say is trying to find a way to um, fit what they're working on within the larger, um, theoretical contexts that are um, where the debates are. Um, I also think that uh, if you look at the list of references, so um, not only is it interdisciplinary, it's a great reading list. So 
Um, it's a good place to start. It's a good survey. Um, and I, I hope that it will be very generative for somebody who um, can see where their, their own work fits within this context, but also get a sense of, of what the debates are when it comes to migration and, and MENA, but also when it comes to how studying movement in MENA fits, places MENA in the world as well. And how about you, Rana? Thank you, Mark. Um, I'll just go ahead and echo that this was a pleasure to work on and get to know um, my co-authors, uh, awesome lady co-authors. And um, in terms of you know what I really appreciate from this chapter, I think especially if I think of to the time when we were writing it and I was writing up my dissertation, you know, as we, we focus on our own research, sometimes we really narrow and specialize and are focused on, you know, the little part of the discipline that we um, are working on. But this chapter really helped me see more of those interconnections between migration and displacement, which, you know, despite them sharing in common, being about people on the move are often um, siloed into their own studies. Um, and I'm taking that term from Erwan uh, and Ar 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 David Fitzgerald's um, just released book um, that talks about siloing in the discipline, um, the refugee system, check it out. Um, and so, you know, even if I think about the future of studying something like conflict and displacement, you know, thinking about future questions that I think this book raises, including something like climate change and that how that's going to affect people on the move, you know, I think it's necessary to think about movement that's caused by climate change as not just forced displacement, um, not just internal migration, but sort of seeing the connections and how they, they relate to each other. That's a really fantastic point. And uh, and with that, I want to thank the three of you for joining us today. And, um, and thanks for talking about the chapter on migration. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's article segment, we're joined by Lindsay Benstead of Portland State University, Kristen Cow of the University of Gothenburg, they're the authors of a recent article, Female Electability in the Arab World, The Advantages of Intersectionality, which came out in Comparative Politics last year. Lindsay, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Kristen, why don't you start off and just tell us a little bit about this article, what the problem was that motivated it, and what you guys were trying to accomplish in the, in the research. Yeah, well, first off, uh, I wanted to thank you, Mark, for giving us this opportunity to uh, talk about our research. Um, so I think Lindsay and I went into this trying to uh, understand better uh, what explains why women are either more or less successful in different types of contexts. And um, this question is very important. As we know, uh, gender quotas have uh, been on the rise in recent decades, and so more and more women are being elected. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of work done, especially uh, in contexts outside of the uh, sort of uh, Western world on uh, voting behavior, and in particular, how sort of a female versus male um, candidate uh, fares in elections or why they fare differently in different types of elections. And in particular, also, we were um, interested in understanding how uh, other identities, intersectional identities like race or ethnicity, or possibly religion or ideology, uh, might matter. So we uh, decided to uh, 
run an experiment uh, in the context of, uh, of Jordan in the Arab world. Uh, so overall, we found that um, uh, the uh, many of the theories that are commonly used to explain electoral politics uh, in the literature uh, did not fully explain what we found um, in our study in Jordan. And uh, we considered different types of theories like gender role congruity, power relations, social identity theory, and also cross-cutting cleavages. Um, and we uh, concluded, though, that uh, more work uh, outside of uh, the Western world also needs to, to adopt what's known as an intersectional uh, lens. So sort of an, adopting this intersectional theory um, that we see as complementary rather than competing uh, to these other sorts of theories to explain electoral behavior. That sounds really interesting. So, Lindsay, why don't you walk us through the theory a little bit more then in terms of uh, what you mean by intersectionality and how it applies in a, in a case such as uh, elections in Jordan? Sure. Well, thank you so, Mar so much, Mark, for having us to talk about our research. Um, so, um, intersectionality has become a little bit of a buzzword, I think, not only in academia, but also just in popular media writ large. Um, and so what we wanted to do was to think through a little bit more how we could operationalize and test an intersectional theory. Um, we looked first at some theories of um, electability that were already in the literature. And um, following from Collins, we determined that most of the theories that were in the literature had either um, a unitary or multiple perspective. So what this meant was, for instance, gender role congruity theory might be an example um, of a theory that didn't fully engage an intersectional, uh, an intersectional perspective. Um, okay, so a unitary approach would be one that just focuses on one candidate identity. Um, and in the case of gender role congruity theory, this was the notion that, well, we expect that um, voters in Middle Eastern countries and maybe more broadly worldwide would prefer male candidates. So um, this sort of theory of electability focuses on just one identity of the mm -hmm. candidate. Um, others, you know, such as cross-cutting cleavages, looked at a multiple approach, so more than one identity. But we found that power relations or the structure of uh, social hierarchy was not fully integrated into literature on voting behavior in the MENA region. So the way that an intersectional approach is different from previous approaches, uh, first of all, it draws on a number of scholars, including Kimberly Crenshaw, and it's the notion that multiple identities are important for electability or some other outcome, such as discrimination. Multiple identities are important and that they intersect or interact in complex ways um, that have to be empirically verified or empirically explored. But uh, the second part, and I think the crucial part of intersectional, intersectionality theory that's not well, it's not always well understood, even among scholars, is the ways in which these identities, these complex and intersecting identities, are mutually reinforced by or mutually constitutive of social hierarchies or power relations. So this is why we thought in terms of interacting candidate gender, um, Islamism 
uh, as well as co-tribal identity, we thought that um, it would be important to look at these three traits in intersectionally in terms of interactively, but also think about or theorize about the ways in which power relations within Jordanian politics shape the power that each of these um, identity categories bring to elections and thus their electability. So how did you go about studying this then? Yeah, so we um, we decided to run a survey experiment and uh, we focused on these main identities that are really important in Jordanian politics. And so that is um, gender, of course, male and female. Jordan does have a gender quota about um, in recent uh, elections, it's been between 10 and 15% of women have been on that quota. And um, of course, then there are the uh, Islamist parties that are um, sort of mainly one dominant Islamist party, the Islamic Action Front, and that ha has been traditionally um, an opposition party to the regime and the most popular uh, political party in Jordan, at least at this time. Um, and then uh, also Jordanian elections are very well known for co-tribal co voting, and that's sort of tied to um, things like having WASTA, which is known as connections, uh, uh, to in order to gain access to services um, tribes also provide protection for their tribal members um, etc so uh, so then we designed this low information experiment um, and we really wanted to like focus the attention on these identities so the prompts were as simple as a sentence um, you know imagine that there's an educated male or female um, so those were two profiles there are six in total who is either a member of your tribe or not so that's two more um, or is an islamist or not so six profiles in total um, of course in the real world all sorts of other factors may come into play but we just wanted to know you know what do these identities mentioning of these different identities trigger for respondents in jordan so we embedded the experiment within um, a governance and local development uh, survey of um, 1499 jordanians in 2014 and um, we find um, we find some very uh, interesting um, outcomes uh, that sort of suggest you know there is some consistency with uh, some of these theories that that Lindsay talked about gender role congruity and power relations theory for example so candidates who are sort of generally stereotyped um, as having the traits and competencies of a leader in the past for example male candidates are more electable than candidates from groups that are marginalized from power, such as women and, and Islamists. Um, and also that as predicted by social identity theory, co-tribalists and um, Islamists are more likely to support members of their in-groups. But we also find um, other outcomes that are more consistent with an intersectional framework. So for example, female candidates um, are able to sort of leverage their um, leverage these intersecting identities such as um, an Islamist female or a co-tribal female um, can do as well as a male Islamist or a male um, co-tribal member. Uh, so that was an interesting uh, finding mm -hmm. that also challenges sort of the conventional wisdom that like Islamists who are typically more religious citizens or tribalists who are typically more conservative citizens shun women in, in, in politics in general. That's really interesting. So 
so Lindsay, what did you conclude from all of this? What do you think the major implications of uh, of the survey's findings, the experimental findings are? Well, I think the experimental findings really challenge conventional wisdoms. Um, the most important conventional wisdom that they challenge is the notion that Middle Eastern or Arab voters won't want to vote for female candidates, that it's this these sets of biases and stereotypes that are really driving why we see so few women in uh, in office in the Middle East and North Africa. And I think we have those same conventional wisdoms as well about voters in other regions as well. And so this is something that increasingly scholars are studying. But it is really interesting that we do find that among certain groups, so among Islamist candidates, for instance, or among co-tribal candidates, female candidates were as electable as male candidates within those groups. Um, and so this really challenges us to think about um, any outcomes, such as electability from an intersectional point of view, whether, it, whether in terms of how we're theorizing these things or in terms of how we might be thinking about policy programs that can help not only not only women, but other minorities from power have an equal playing field in in political um, uh, in uh, in elections, and so minorities from power are not just females, but they are also thinking intersectionally, females or perhaps Islamists within um, a semi-competitive context. And there's some interesting the the findings that you, for example, about uh, Islamists uh, being the least likely to be elected. Um, it's kind of interesting in terms of what that actually says in terms of what we know about Jordanian election results. Uh, what did you think about that um, as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of strictly the intersectional part? It's actually, this finding is consistent with some other research that we we also conducted. Um, the study of electability in Tunisia that I conducted with Ellen Lust and Amani Jamal, that study also found that Islamist appearing males were the least electable among Tunisians. So this notion that, you know, just as Crenshaw noticed that, you know, in terms of predicting discrimination, that the experiences of Black women were different from those of Black men. Here, this is very interesting that we're finding in Tunisia and Jordan and other scholars are beginning to see this in, in other contexts as well, this notion that um, females that are appearing to be or representing Islamist movements may fare better in elections than male counterparts. And that really um, illustrates why in an intersectional uh, theory or an inter intersectional perspective is absolutely essential to thinking about how candidates from different backgrounds will fare. And then, Kristen, in terms of your earlier research on on tribalism in Jordan, do you see kind of similar types of dynamics? Yes, definitely. I mean, that finding maps on to sort of the reality of elections in Jordan. So um, the Jordanian elections are dominated by these tribal co-tribal candidates and tribalism sort of playing the most important role. And that is somewhat, you know, as, as already mentioned, tied mm -hmm. to like 
belief in access to services through this connection. But um, but Islamists, you know, they are also a, a powerful force in the background. And, and I think also in the experiment, we didn't say the IAF specifically, um, not specifically that party, we just said an Islamist ideology. So it was trying to trigger that identity, but not necessarily like the specific party that does the best in the elections. So, yeah. Yeah, this, like, this is really it's really interesting research, and it's a very in interesting methodological approach to try and tease all these uh, all these intersectional dynamics out. Uh, Lindsay, uh, Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your article. <laughs>